Welcome to Not So Standard Deviations. This is episode 35, and I'm Roger Peng, and I'm here as usual with Hillary Parker. Um, but this time we have a special guest. It's uh, Sean Taylor from Facebook. And uh, Hillary, do you want to introduce him? Yeah, definitely. So um, Sean is a, on the core data science team at Facebook. Um, and Sean, you just released a big open source package called Profit. Yes, I did. Awesome. Yeah, so we just wanted to talk to you about that and maybe talk about, um, you know, also just like, your path to becoming a data scientist <laughs> in your background <laughs> and um, yeah, like what inspired this. So I guess maybe let's start with a description of the package. Sure, yeah, so um, the background is uh, I worked on some forecasting problems at Facebook and I, I can't go into too much depth about what they were, but uh, I started to notice some patterns in them and, uh, and also that there weren't good and easy to use packages for solving them. And basically what Profit is, is it's just an extrapolation technology. So if you have a curve uh, and you want to kind of like extrapolate it into the future, then that's what Profit does. Um, and uh, it's mostly mostly optimized for what we call daily data. So if you have kind of like a series of measurements over time and they're measured at the day level. But, uh, but because it's based on curve fitting, that's not really a hard requirement. So it can be kind of like irregularly spaced or you know hourly or monthly or weekly. It doesn't really matter. Uh, but really what it's in effect doing is just taking a line and continuing it into the future. So there's nothing kind of like fancy conceptually about it. Um, mm -hmm. And I think that the, the target market is really for people that are uh, that would have to learn how to use some fancy time series methods, you know, go and go and learn. You could you can read like you know, thousands of pages about time series methods and still not get satisfying answers to a lot of these questions. Um, right. And But we didn't really want people to have to do that because forecasting is really like a basic business need. Like like a lot of really um, entry-level analysts have to do it. Um, and so the, the target market is kind of like these people that are that just want to get done with the forecast and don't want to have to pick up a time series book in order to do so. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that makes a ton of sense to me. I know that that is has been a consistent problem the places I'm working to. <laughs> Forecasting seems to be a really core part of a business. Wait, um, what, what's the problem in terms of like the lack of the tools or the, or the lack of understanding or what? Yeah, it's, it's kind of a, a little bit of both, I would say. But mostly I think it's a tooling problem um, because the tools that are available are very low level. Um, so the really famous uh, package for forecasting is the forecast package, uh, which Rob Hyman wrote. And it has all the kind of latest and greatest algorithms that uh, he and others have devised. Um, but it doesn't really give you a lot of guidance about which ones to use and how to set the parameters and you know how to how to transform the data in advance to make those algorithms work well. Uh, so it ends up looking more like uh, like a toolbox full of like foreign looking tools than like a <laughs> than like something that's going to just directly address your use case. Mm -hmm. I'm shocked to hear that. I mean, that never happens <laughs> in statistics, right? <laughs> yeah, I think you know we've been going through a renaissance over the last few years of uh, you know a lot of it's a lot of it's led by Hadley Wickham of ma making statistical tools more usable, and and this I think is just an, another another example of that. Just trying to take take a bunch of parts that were that were previously just given to you unassembled and assembling them for you and giving you some knobs and dials so that. You don't have to worry so much about the underlying mechanics. Right, yeah. yeah. And so I thought you made a really interesting and good choice making this. So this is something you can use with both R and Python, right? Yes. <laughs> yeah. And so what is, like, what does that, what's that look like? Or like, what does that mean exactly? Uh, so it, it was not that hard to do, to be honest. Uh, mm -hmm. the, the core of the procedure is implemented in Stan. Uh, mm -hmm. So we... So we basically just have to transform the input data into something that Stan can understand. Uh, and that code looks a lot like just kind of basic data munging, like stuff that you can easily accomplish in dplyr mm -hmm. uh, or in Python and pandas, and then passing it into Stan. So Stan is providing like all the model fitting and inference. Uh, mm -hmm. so, the, so the Python and R code are really just veneers around the user input data that kind of transform the input data to something Stan can consume and then transforming the output of Stan into something that we can, you know, render as a plot or as a data frame. Uh, 
so it wasn't too hard to implement those two interfaces. Uh, and it was great because it actually kind of like doubled our market share within Facebook. Facebook has a very fractured analyst ecosystem where basically like, I wouldn't, I don't know if it's exactly 50-50 R in Python, but it's, it's, it's not so far off from that. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and, and so we just, we kind of had to do it to get all the users that we wanted to use it. Yeah. Um, it's been a little bit of a nightmare for, uh, for and when you open source uh, two different versions of a package, you get basically double the bugs. Yeah, <laughs> right. <laughs> so that that part didn't, didn't really scale well, and in particular, the you know it's kind of doubled the number of platforms that we need to support. So like you know you have uh, R on Windows is kind of messy, and Python on Windows is also kind of messy, and so right. uh, I have kind of this non-overlapping set of interesting operating system-related problems to support. <laughs> nice. And are you doing this mostly yourself? Do you have a team, or is it who's working uh, on it? This is with a collaborator, uh, Ben mm-hmm. Lethem, who mm-hmm. who has been amazing, and I, I I will fully admit he's done more than half the work on Profit. So he's uh, <laughs> he like uh, he has an operations research background, uh, mm-hmm. and he. Uh, when I I had originally been working on it alone, and when I brought him on, um, his his perspective was was amazingly important, and it kind of like solved a lot of key lingering problems in the in the package. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so what you're seeing right now is sort of like the culmination of a lot of thought and effort. Over, we probably had like at least three different versions of Profit internally before the one that we open sourced. Um, Wow. And the, th- this third version is the one that I think Ben uh, provided the most insight on how to do. And his and his ideas are kind of like really core to the algorithm, like especially the, the change point detection that we do. Where mm-hmm. In a lot of time series, they have sort of abrupt shifts. And uh, and previous versions of Profit kind of just like smoothed over that. And, and Ben came up with a way of uh, figuring out how to kind of like uh, automatically detect that and, and model it uh, without really adding a lot of user input. And it's it's really a brilliant idea. And it it solves a lot. It makes the forecast like much higher quality. Oh, that's great. That makes a lot of sense. Like if you introduce a new product or something and you know, your number of users goes up a ton on a day, you're saying that this will like directly model that. Yeah. One of the kind of characteristics of the data, we, we have lots of examples of data that we collected from, from years of trying to do forecasts at Facebook and they all were really messy. They don't look like the kind of data that is ideal for forecasting. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and these, these abrupt shifts happen for all kinds of reasons. Like the you know product launch is a is a big one, but there's also logging errors or right. you know someone changes an underlying uh, query that generates generates some data and they rescale it some for some silly reason. And so, uh-huh. you're, <laughs> uh, so realistically, your data is going to be messy. And so the algorithm that you're using for forecasting has to be kind of like accommodating of that. Mm-hmm. That makes a lot of sense. I was just wondering, like, you know, what, how do you decide to kind of open source something like this? I'm sure you guys have plenty yeah. of tools that you build. And how, how do you decide what, what, you know, what you do and what you don't kind of open source? Yeah, that's a great question. Uh, Facebook is very excited about open sourcing things that are, that are like, that fit this model of easy to open source. So they have to be kind of de- decouplable from our infrastructure. So we have lots of great technologies that are difficult to open source because they're just you know too tightly tied to our infrastructure, mm-hmm. um, but this is something that I think is is so incredibly independent of of anything related to Facebook. <clears throat> um, the, literally, the only code that we needed to change in order to open source it was to take out uh, our we we log when people use it so we can keep track of usage statistics uh, mm-hmm. internally. Once we pulled that out, it was it was something that could be directly used by somebody outside of the company. So it was a pretty easy sell. Uh, mm-hmm. to open source it. And the mechanics of it are basically that when someone works on something they want to open source at Facebook, they just ask about it and most people get approval to do it. And then the the hard part is that the work is then uh, is yours and there's not a ton of kind of like internal incentives for uh, for being a good open source citizen. But I think a lot of people just feel the, feel the need to share what they did because they're excited about it. Um, and so it's, it's, it's the age old open source motivation, which is like, I just, I did something cool and I want everybody to use it. Nice. Uh, so that's where, that's mostly where it comes from is our, yeah. our motivation to do that. Nice. Yeah. It seems like it's uh it's definitely a commitment of time <laughs> to like well, also, maintain it's a, it. And... and it's a commitment that kind of goes out indefinitely, you know? 
I, I know. I, I have some concerns about how sustainable <laughs> it is. There's, there, it, it's, you get a little bit of input energy too, because there's lots of people that have actually fixed a bunch of kind of difficult bugs for us. So like I said, the, the Windows compatibility stuff was something that it's actually really difficult for me to debug because I'm not a Windows user. So I have to go and to go to our IT department and borrow a Windows laptop <laughs> and relearn all the, how to use a Windows keyboard and, and mm-hmm. uh, all that stuff just to kind of like fix a bug. And now we have a community of people that can pitch in on issues like that. So it actually, in a lot of ways, has been helpful. I will admit that uh, there's been a number of kind of like questions and complaints that I'm kind of like, uh, I wish that I didn't have to deal with this right now. But <laughs> yeah. But uh, but overall, I think it's been a really positive experience. Nice. Yeah. That's. The, I mean, I was also wondering that, like, what. It sounds like the way that you architected the project made it essentially. Well, I'm not going to say free, but like pretty easy to open source. Um, And so I was, yeah, just wondering, it sounds like, (laughs) do you put yourself in the category of people who is like, oh, this is just cool and I want to share it, like in terms of your motivation? I think it's it's mostly that. I think, Mm -hmm. you know, it's and I think it's something that's broadly useful. And we we were we had this hypothesis that there was this huge unfilled uh, demand for something like this. And it was it was fun to test that hypothesis by releasing it and seeing uh, the uptake of the tool. Mm-hmm. Um, it was like, you know, we just had been through this for a couple of years at Facebook and realized that there were no there were no good solutions out there. And there's all this there's kind of commercial forecasting tools that you can buy. Uh, mm-hmm. But even those we found to be, you know, not as high quality as as a as a well a well thought out statistical model. Mm-hmm. So once we came up with something that kind of worked generically, it just felt like, you know, th- the number of hours we could save people in the world by sharing this <laughs> was were huge as long as the, the our, our hypothesis about this being a common problem was was true. And it turned out that I think that it was. Yeah. I wonder, I'm, did you, sorry, did you um, get any, have you gotten any like feedback from the kind of time series community as opposed to like the R and Python community in terms of the modeling approach that you took and uh, in the package? That's a great question. And the answer to that is not yet. And I, I would like to talk to some more people about it. And I, so I'm not a I'm not a statistician by training, but I play one at work. <laughs> and so <laughs> I, and, I, and I did do a pretty thorough evaluation of, of what was available in time series packages. And uh, and the, the issue that we came upon was that uh, that they're they're fragile. So when the yeah. input data has has weird distributions um, that are very skewed, or like if you have irregular observations, uh, like all the recursive methods kind of don't work well when you have to interpolate missing observations. Um, and then they also have a lot of kind of like hidden parameters. So even even something as simple as an ARIMA uh, has a bunch of parameters that you need to you need to set. And there's there are some principled ways to do it, but um, but in general it's not um, it's not easy for a beginner. So profit is a very opinionated model, and it's it's based on curve fitting, which I think time series people would be really upset about in a lot of ways because it's more like uh, a discriminative model, a discriminative model than a generative model. Like we, right. we're not we're not claiming that we know the process that generated the data. We're just saying like here here is a curve that that seems to fit it well. Mm-hmm. And I think time series people that are purists might find that to be a little objectionable. <laughs> <laughs> well, but, I found that a lot. I feel like. You know, 90% of the time series literature, at least the academic literature, is kind of in the modeling the random part of the model, you know, <clears throat> and uh, very little kind of takes, that's why I thought, I thought your approach was, I personally prefer your approach. I think it's much more intuitive and it's, um, it's I think, easier to, lo- to kind of learn from the data and not using a model like, like the guys you, like, you, like you implemented. But I feel like almost... All the literature is basically looking at these kind of essentially ARIMA type models or GARCH models, things like that, that model the random part as opposed to the fixed part. That's um, right. And I think, um, so I was really like excited to see that you did that because, <laughs> because <laughs> I feel like I, I, it seems much more straightforward to me, but I, 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 but like nobody does that. <laughs> yeah, there's, I, you know, a, a small group of people started discussing the package on Twitter after I released it. And, and someone said, isn't this just like a, like a gam with a, with a spline basis expansion and some, and like a, um, uh, and a cyclic, a, a cubic cyclic spline for the yearly seasonality. And I said, yeah, that's basically what it is. <laughs> There's nothing particularly fancy about it. 
but it works well in practice. And I think that that's something that time series people, are, you know, I'm, maybe I appear to be like a bit of a Philistine to them because I picked a, a simpler solution that, that tends to work well instead of kind of like the, the best possible way of modeling it. And, and we're not, and we're honest about the fact that we actually don't know uh, the operating characteristics of the algorithm. So like the, Although we say we have like, you know, they're not confidence intervals, we call them uncertainty intervals. And I actually don't know their frequentist properties. So I can't tell you that uh, our intervals are going to contain 95% of your potential future observations. Mm -hmm. um, but but they provide some notion of how uncertain we are. <laughs> <laughs> and yeah. and they're, they're kind of like, you know, generated through a simulation. So instead of right. like, instead of knowing the generative model, we just sort of like, it's, it's something like more akin to a bootstrap uh so it we we're not quite sure what properties it has but it but it intends to work well in practice and so that's what we just stop there and say that's good enough mm -hmm. well one thing that i wanted to get into kind of around that concept of like working well in practice is i i I, th I think about this problem a lot in companies where you you have a big enough group and you want to somewhat uniform the way that people approach a problem um and i feel like a lot of times a company will be like the first solution that pops into especially like an engineer's head is to build a tool that does it and when i say tool not like an r package but literally like a ui where you upload data and it like displays a pr like the results or something like that um and so i was really excited that you decided to build a package rather than some sort of kind of like UI heavy interface for that, if that makes sense. Um, and then, yes. yeah, or conversely, like the other solution would be just to do a bunch of training with the analysts and like teach them all of the functions and forecast. And so it seems like you kind of chose something that was in between those two, um, which appeals to me for sure. Yeah, that that was very intentional, um, and it it actually wasn't the first approach that we tried. I, I remember uh, over two years ago working on this, and we we started with building a GUI mm -hmm. <laughs> before right. we had before we had a good algorithm, and it was just kind of like a total waste of time to to build a user interface around an algorithm that we weren't sure was going to work well. Yeah, um, I'm so glad you said that because <laughs> I feel like that's exactly what happens almost every time. <laughs> Yeah, you can't you can't build the veneer on top of it until the core procedure works well. Um, right. And I think there was another part to that that was intentional, which is that you have to think about who your early users are going to be. Um, when you build it, when you build an R package or a Python package, your early users are going to be people that are kind of like capable of installing a new package and figuring it out, and they're going to mm -hmm. be a, a friendlier set of new users than people who use a GUI who are going to kind of like expect a lot of uh, a lot of polish on the tool. Like mm -hmm. if, you, if, if you make a GUI tool, it's going to be really widely used immediately. And mm -hmm. you're going to get these kind of like amateur users who are not going to be used to ex finding bugs or missing pieces. Mm -hmm. But when you make an R package, I think people are a little more forgiving. You know, they say, okay, well, something's broken and I'm going to tell you about it. And I'm going to explain to you why it's broken more precisely than just kind of like hammering on the keyboard. Mm -hmm. And and that's that's a friendlier group of new users to have, and that was that was important. Um, yeah, that yeah, I think that's a really interesting way of thinking about it. And then my next question would be: Do you think, like, would you see a future implementation of this at Facebook being a GUI, or do you think it should always stay kind of in? Do you think the user should always be people who are writing R code and Python code? Uh, no, I actually, I really do want to build a GUI around it. And I think that mm -hmm. that's, uh, and we just, we haven't had quite had the time to do that yet, but it's, it's a really obvious next step because I, when I, when I give a talk on profit, I, I show, um, examples of technologies that people have kind of like intuitively figured out how to use despite them being internally complicated. Uh, mm -hmm. so for instance, like a car has like, you know, a steering wheel and pedals, and that's really like all you kind of need to know to drive a car. Mm -hmm. um, and profit really uh, has a has a few, uh, only a few, a handful of ways that the user can kind of like influence what the forecast looks like, and they mm -hmm. could easily be described as sort of like knobs. I, I think of them as knobs and buttons. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and it ends up looking like an old stereo or something like that when you think about it. It's like <laughs> like a few knobs next to each other, and if you, so, if you want more or less yearly seasonality, you turn this knob to the right or to the left, and. Mm -hmm. 
Mm-hmm. If you if you want a nonlinear growth curve, then you flip the switch. And, uh, mm-hmm. and and I think that with a GUI and with a fast fitting algorithm, people could actually intuitively learn how to make forecasts that are that are, that are good for their use cases without really knowing anything about how to run. Like we abstracted away the statistics from people, so they can just use the R package and not understand that. But then we can abstract away the use of R completely. <laughs> Mm-hmm. So that the people who who just kind of like want to make a good forecast can do so, and I think that uh, that's really the next step in democratization mm-hmm. of the tool. Hmm. Do you get pushback from people on your team about that? <laughs> <laughs> yes, I do. Yeah. The one 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 team member. No, I don't. I think yeah. everybody's everybody's pretty welcoming about. It, but I think what Hillary's referring to uh, <laughs> my friend John Miles White. Uh, who many, many of many of the listeners, I'm sure, will know him from Twitter, and and we have, I think, somewhat opposing perspectives about uh, the use of statistics. And I think you know, right. he he might say something like, uh, "People who use statistical tools should really understand their internal workings perfectly, uh, or else they're likely to make important mistakes." Mm-hmm. And I think there's there's a certainly a good argument for that. But uh, but I think I'm a more of a realist, and I think like these people are going to come up with a forecast whether they know statistics or not. <laughs> so I, I would rather they use a tool uh, that has baked in some best practices into it uh, than, than go and do something um, like, you know, just trying to cobble together what they can uh, just from like kind of off the shelf stuff. Mm-hmm. Well, also, I, mean, I think this debate kind of leans in one way or the other, depending on, you know, the area. I mean, I think like the way that you've done this package is, reasonable in the sense that you know, you've got a lot of flexible modeling, you've got a lot of, um, you know, kind of, it's not, it, I think it's, you know, you've taken care of, of the, kind of a lot of the things that could go wrong in terms of a, maybe assuming a more restricted model or kind of, or that kind of thing. And so reducing it down to a couple of parameters that the user can modify, you know, is I think reasonable in this situation, but it might not be reasonable in other cases. And I think that just kind of depends. Um, mm-hmm. And you have to be aware of that as a developer, right? I mean, I think... You are absolutely right. I think it, it's it, it, a lot of it was sort of like making the problem simple enough that uh, that the the space of options is quite small, and that you know somebody who's a beginner could learn it pretty quickly. Um, and a good example of a, a extra complexity that would make it difficult is uh, people keep asking for profit to be multivariate. So could you forecast um, multiple related time series at the same time? Oh wow. <laughs> And and it's a really natural thing to ask because a lot of a lot of people believe that that's a that's a more fruitful way to forecast. You can kind of like either borrow strength across the different time series, or maybe they're related in some they co-vary in some way, or they have some uh, autocorrelation structure. Mm-hmm. Um, but it makes the user uh, interaction with the tool like way more complicated because you have to sort of like specify all your different time series like and figure out how they might be related to one another. And there's just like the number of options for the user would kind of like explode. And mm-hmm. and then that more complicated problem isn't really amenable to this sort of like uh, beginner friendly solution. And so it's not, mm-hmm. we're still thinking about doing it, but we have to maintain this uh, more easy to, like the ease of use I think is like the really the killer feature for profit. And I want to make sure that we, we stick with that. I think Roger's absolutely right. There's a lot of problems out there where you really do want someone well-trained working on them. Mm-hmm. Well, just in the example that you mentioned, it's like, you know, the number of parameters does kind of increase, but that would not be an issue if there were an easy way for you, the developer, to choose, you know, the best uh, estimate or the best uh, value for those parameters or something that's reasonable that, you know, fits a lot of scenarios. But in this case, maybe there isn't, and then you just have to leave it to the user, and then it just makes it more complicated. Right? Yes, that's right. Yeah. I'm, I'm sort of, I'm still thinking about this, um, the, like the GUI solution. So I guess first question for you, what sort of training are you doing at Facebook to get people like ramped up on the tool? Uh, good question. Uh, we, we have a, uh, a, a training process at Facebook we call Data Camp. Mm-hmm. And Data Camp is a two week kind of immersive program for all people that are gonna work with data. Mm-hmm. And we we just introduce profit within Data Camp. So we spend I think twenty minutes in one of the sessions. It's, I think we we have a session where we talk about kind of like miscellaneous tools, and this mm-hmm. is one of them. Um, and then a lot of the training is just kind of like uh, through social means. So we have like we have a good um, a good set of documentation um, and lots of examples 
and they're like kind of like runnable examples on Facebook infrastructure. So someone could like paste it in mm -hmm. and it would work immediately. Uh, but after that, I think we, we mostly just kind of like hope that people teach each other how to use it. And we, uh, we have a, like a Facebook group internally where people can ask questions and it's, it's quite active and people kind of like ask for like what the right way to do something or how to solve a problem is. And we, we do our best to answer, but it's really not like, you know, we, we have a class on how to do forecasting. It's, it's much more like lazy fair than that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, it's sort of interesting. I think kind of to your original point of, you know, these are kind of engaged, quote unquote, good users who are going to report bugs. And, and then furthermore, there's, I think there's just an assumption. They understand that they're getting a model that, like they understand like the knobs thing and the fact that you've made some modeling choices and they're making other modeling choices and it all comes together into this output. I think with the GUI, I feel like a GUI encourages, so again, speaking from experience, I feel like if you have a statistical tool that like looks like a nice website and non-experts are looking at it, um, it can kind of take on a life of its own. And I, I definitely <laughs> saw people like backing into statistics from it in a funny way. So my favorite example, and I think I've mentioned it on the podcast before, was um, I was talking to a designer about the, um, it's like Google, Analy what, Google Analytics, is that they have like a cohort tool that I actually really dislike, but it's like kind of like <laughs> colors. It, it has like, you know, percent of people who did some action over time and it color shades them. And this designer was like, yeah, I was thinking about a tool where you could like stack two on top of each other and compare the colors to figure out which one is bigger. <laughs> and I was just like, oh no, like this is, this is like such a, you know, obviously a roundabout way to get to like hypothesis testing or something like that. Well, and, it's like um, the, the GUI itself becomes a building block for what other people want to do, right? Exactly. Yeah. And it, and it, and without like really strong messaging and then socialization, it sort of obfuscates away the fact that they're, the fact that this is a simplification of a complex process, if that makes sense. Um, so I don't know. That's the. <laughs> I don't know if you have thoughts on that, Sean. <laughs> it does make sense, and I, yeah. I I worry about that stuff just as much as anybody else. And I, there's a couple different factors at play here. What like I have a I have a blog post I wrote a long time ago called the Statistics Software Signal, where I'm mm -hmm. describing like like you know what I think the characteristics of the certain kinds of user users of certain statistical languages are, <laughs> mm -hmm. and uh, and I I had a a point that I made which is that when software is too easy to use, um, it attracts more. Uh, it attracts users that are kind of like more beginner and and mm -hmm. and then th those people are more like the people that are more likely to make a mistake and so if you see results where they've been tagged with like you know they were computed in SPSS mm -hmm. um, I might stereotype the kind of person that would produce them as like you know not being particularly sophisticated because mm -hmm. they wanted to use something easy and so I, I can be a little bit more skeptical of those results. So I, I do feel like there's a, and that's almost just like st statistical snobbery. Um, <laughs> uh, but that's, that's one factor at play. Um, and I do think that you're right that when, uh, when you try to build things that simplify things for people, you end up having to, to make assumptions on their behalf mm -hmm. that, that they, that they might not either understand or, or even feel comfortable making if you were able to kind of describe the trade-offs. Mm -hmm. uh, to them more precisely, uh, but but they'll never know. It's sort of like we never know the counterfactual. Mm -hmm. uh, if you if you would have gone and trained them and asked them or elicited from them exactly what they really wanted, and so they're just going to get what they get. Um, mm -hmm. And both of those things are kind of like destined to make the quality of stuff that comes out of processes like that uh, somewhat worse. Mm -hmm. But I also feel like. Uh, there's a culture in statistics of sort of like telling people no, like you you can't mm -hmm. you can't you can't do that. Like it's it's a very common thing to say like what you just did isn't going to work or is wrong or something. And I yeah. I feel like as statisticians we should get better at telling people, enabling people in ways like giving them kind of like a way to do something that they couldn't do before. Mm -hmm. And I I know that the GUI kind of like has these has these bad properties, but it also has the has the benefit of. Um, it, it gives it, 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 it's a way of us as statisticians saying like yes to people instead of saying no. Mm -hmm. 
That's something, yeah, that's something Roger and I have talked about before. <laughs> well, I, mean, I mean, one of the things that I feel like a GUI makes for a reasonable endpoint, but it makes for a poor, like, piece of a pipeline, you know? <laughs> yeah, yes. that too. In terms of reproducibility, for sure, like, you'll get a lot of screenshots of the GUI in, like, Google Docs. <laughs> <laughs> Hypothetically, right? You've never seen that happen, yeah. right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Speaking from experience. <laughs> so I, I guess the the question is: Is it possible to kind of create something that's? I mean, I think I don't think I don't think it's a big deal to make choices for the user, but is it possible to create something that's usable but also kind of reusable? You know what I mean? Does that make sense? <laughs> yeah, like for, I mean, I think to Sean's blog post point, it's the software signal, the software choices. kind of should be independent from the knowledge portion but they're highly correlated right now maybe that's what you're saying yes yeah and so roger was that what you were saying (laughs) no i'll just i'm actually i'm actually asking like is it possible to make so like an r package is you would argue highly reusable right Oh, but I see. Yeah. not the easiest thing to use. And is it possible to like make something that's easy, but it's also reusable? I don't know. I mean, maybe not. I think there, there are other examples of this uh, within Facebook where, I mean, we have, when I, when I, when I give a talk on profit, I call the, the talk's called forecasting at scale. And, mm-hmm. and, but the type of scale that I'm talking about isn't the, isn't the amount of data or the amount of computation, but it's the, mm-hmm. the variety of use cases and the variety of people uh, using forecasting tools. Mm-hmm. And uh, and that's the that's the central challenge is how do we build something that works for a bunch of use cases and a bunch of people and that's we'd like to scale to like you know a hundred people using it instead of just ten mm-hmm. and it's it's a very much much it's a much more modest kind of scale but it's very empowering for those people because those ninety people that we weren't addressing with a with a with an earlier version of the tool were kind of going to go and do something that was either wrong or really costly for them to work on. Mm-hmm. Uh, and there's other examples of tools at Facebook that I think address this. So we have like, you know, our, our A-B testing platform and a bunch of other companies have very similar things where like, you know, if you run an experiment and you have your metrics that you care about, it will just kind of like, you know, compute the compute the average treatment effect and give you confidence intervals and maybe do some subgroup analysis for you. Mm-hmm. And and that's a that's a repeatable statistical problem where there's like a well-defined input format and output format and i feel like profit kind of conforms to that same thing it's just like if your data frame that you care about looks like this then we can provide you with this mm-hmm. um and you know substitute data frame for like gigantic hive table with like a couple billion observations in it but it's the same sort of idea that there's there's some structured data that has a has a known structure and i and i i know a lot about what i want because it's something that i do a lot and so we just have to kind of like build stuff for those use cases that works across a variety of a variety of use cases that are constrained in some way mm-hmm. <laughs> i just had this vision of like creating kind of like a chatbot interface to this package and, and, then, and then like if you want to do analyses you know you'd have to like <laughs> to compare you'd have to talk to it and like compare different things based on what you asked it i think that would be way better than a web-based front end someone has tried that right there was a startup really? for um there was a startup in san francisco for it was like talk you you like ask a question and it translates it to SQL. At least that was my understanding of it, and I did not look into it that much. But it was. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, I I think it's it's a yeah. Roger, you're on to something. <laughs> <laughs> have you guys have you guys seen the automated statistician? No. No. Uh, yeah. So that was a project out of Cambridge, and the the, the idea is uh, to like you. You can upload. It's a it's a kind of a GUI interface. You upload a data set, uh, and I think it's I think it's just a univariate like, or something that actually looks like the input to profit. So it would be a, a sequence of measurements uh, like. Oh, a curve. I have seen this. Yes. And yeah. and it, what it will do is kind of like fit a fit a very generic model on that, and and try a bunch of different models and perform some model selection and say like, here's the model that I found that works best for the data that you gave me. And hmm. and it and it produces as output a a PDF report like a la Knitter. <laughs> <laughs> so so Amazing. the user interf- the user interface is like data in and like PDF document out with with actually like uh it it actually will write the text of the report for you. Yeah, um, oh, that's funny. Wow. 
yeah, yeah that's I, funny actually roger going back to that our our that was like ep- episode three of this podcast or something yeah, like that <laughs> we worked on something like that a couple of years ago like explainer i mean it was very much like not a usable r package but <laughs> and it was kind of the same thing where you put in um you would do the hypothesis test, put it into a, and then you could pipe it to like an explain function and then it would output a paragraph. Um, Cause there oh, is, there's like a I key. I saw this, yes. Yeah, <laughs> and then there's like mansplainer. Yes. <laughs> um, but anyway, it, it is, I mean, it, I just, I'm, I feel so ambivalent about this because it is true that when you run as a statistician, you sort of memorize the script for hypothesis test output or like whatever your statistical method, you know, that you use commonly is. Um, and there's always like key information you know will be relevant. Um, and so it is nice to have a function like that where you're like, okay, just like make my paragraph explaining, you know, this power calculation or something. Um, but at the same time, I just, I don't know. I still feel like they take on a life of their own in ways that can, I mean, to, you know, I think John Miles White point, they take on a life of their own that can end up just making decisions harder or worse. Um, I felt like with sort of the AB testing UI thing, you just see so much wheel spinning around it where it's like, if you get one person trained in hypothesis testing in the room, it's a two minute decision. Whereas, you know, if you don't, then people are talking about how to create, you know, color comparison. You know what I mean? Like it just, <laughs> it's not always like the efficient way to finish something or make a decision. Yes. Yeah. I, I totally understand that there's a, there's a realm of trade-offs here where if, you know, ideally you just have a statistician on every team and, <laughs> and that person, and, you know, I don't know if we'll ever be able to train that enough statisticians to fulfill all these roles, but, um, but you know that person could kind of be the arbiter of what's actually right to do, and but I just don't think realistically that's ever going to happen. Mm-hmm. So there needs to be something to fill that space, and and if you if you go and like look at what people really do in practice who don't have statistical training, um, it it does look messy. Like you'll see people with like Excel spreadsheets that are just like impossible mm-hmm. to look at with like tons yeah. of tabs and formulas and you're just like I have no idea how or why this works mm-hmm. but they but they seem to kind of like in practice uh end up with things that sort of like are good enough mm-hmm. and and I know it's it's not optimal or whatever but but I often feel like those people are are actually solving real problems without having necessarily like the best tools at their disposal. And it's, and it's like an intuitive process. They just kind of inductively figure out like when I do this, this tends to work. And when I don't do this, mm-hmm. um, nothing really breaks. And so I, I kind of want to give those people some credit and actually mm-hmm. instead of telling them that they shouldn't be doing statistics, maybe giving them some, some simple tools that they can like also learn how they work and mm-hmm. to add to their suite of tools I know that's a little controversial and I certainly wouldn't want someone like that, like, you know, diagnosing me with cancer or something, but (laughs) (laughs) yeah, but but for business stuff, it might be okay. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, that's a really important point that, you know, I I think that it, it doesn't always get enough airtime that most statistical methods were developed, or I don't know if, I don't know if they were like developed, but sort of, I think of hypothesis testing where the kind of the alpha level and the the power and everything is sort of tuned for the clinical trial implementation where you're talking about people's lives and people dying with the wrong treatment. Whereas like in business setting, the trade-offs are completely different, but we're still (laughs) using those parameters as if it's the right way to go about it. So I do feel like there's, um, I like, I definitely hear that point where it's, you know, when you're talking about like smaller scale decisions that are important for a business, but they don't have to be at like, we will make different choices about false positive rates or error rates or whatever. Um, yeah. You, you have yeah. to think about like, there's like, uh, there's, you know, a statistician writes down a loss function, right? So they'll say, here's what I, here's what I think will happen if there's a type one error. Here's what I think will happen if there's a type two error, but there's a, mm-hmm. a third kind of loss, which is just how much time you spend on the problem. Yeah. And like you have to you have to factor <laughs> that in because yeah. if you if you don't then you could you would you what it would tell you is just spend infinite time on this until you have converged on the you know the minimal loss but that's not really what you want all the time you want to kind of like move on to the next problem 
Mm-hmm. That's a really good point. <laughs> I like how you phrase that. I, I mean, I think the fact of the matter is that that, regardless of whether we like it or not, that's how most an- data is analyzed. You know. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. It would be really interesting to know of people analyzing data what's what's like empirically the background (laughs) and like what do we even count as analyzing data you know i think that the the excel thing is really interesting because um i think excel actually has a way to you know when you like take a cell and drag it down and it like fills things i think Uh there's literally a forecast function for that where you can just like drag it over (laughs) Do you know, I mean, Sean, do you know about this? Maybe I'm making it I don't. I, I try to avoid using Excel as much as I can. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> That's I, actually how the package works. <laughs> yes. This was like one time one of my coworkers at Etsy told me this. And so, and I was like, ugh, <laughs> like never. But I think that is true. And so, I mean, again, it would be really interesting to know how often is that really happening? Because I think, yeah, obviously this like a GUI tool for profit would be so much preferable to that. Although then again, I don't know what's actually going on behind, you know, maybe Excel has implemented this like very advanced formula for forecasting, sort of doubt it, but um, (laughs) anyway, yeah, it's, I mean, it's a really good point. And I feel like I'm always circling around this question in my head um, of like, I mean, I have like this totally distorted version vision of like how many people use R <laughs> or how many people, you know, how many people are using Excel versus R. Um, and so it would be interesting. I wonder if there's anything out there that like a, a study on this. No. Well, how many people do you think use Excel versus R? <laughs> <laughs> well, I think at one point I was like, oh, it's like 50, 50. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Yeah. Not true. Or like, cause my, in my world, it was like, you know, all of the, like, I mean, I think like older, like 10 years ago, I mean, I guess 10 years ago, the tools were totally different, but I think so many people in like business intelligence use Excel and those people are starting to come over to using R and Python. Um, and so that in my head, it was like, yeah, everyone's coming over. Like, <laughs> but I think there's still a healthy, <laughs> a very healthy percentage that's using uh Excel. I, I guess the people who would probably know this best are like the people at our studio and the people at Microsoft and like these various BI tools have a pretty good idea of their um, user base. So, so Hillary, I, I bet at some point you have found come across this study and you, pr- you might even know it better than I do where they, uh, they gave the same data set and the same research question uh, <laughs> to a variety of analysts and just said kind of like go and try to answer this question. I, no, you should describe it. I've seen I've seen evidence of this, but I haven't looked into it. <laughs> I, I think that the as I recall, the the question was something like, uh, "Is there a, a racial bias in MBA refereeing?" Uh-huh. Um, and then they gave the they gave the teams um, a data set on sort of like you know MBA games and like which which players were uh, I guess were like given penalties or fouls or I don't actually watch a lot of MBA so. Mm-hmm. Not the best to equip to talk about that part of it, and then they kind of like like let them loose on the data and said, you know, like tell me what your what your answer to this question is, and mm-hmm. and there was a variety of answers, and including like everything from from yes and definitely yes and definitely no to people that were kind of like more uncertain, mm-hmm. and uh, I think there's a lot of interesting work to be done there and sort of just figuring out what uh, if you give people questions and and data. What processes do they use, and which ones tend to be more successful than others? And can we do a better job of coaching? Um, like, mm-hmm. and I think we all know that if you know if you go if you do it in R and you you know if you use Knitter and you make it really reproducible and you use all the kind of like state of the art tools, you're going to do probably a, a better job. But we don't know like why mm-hmm. necessarily. Is it is it because the the people that use those things are smarter, or is it because uh, they are they're just using really good tools mm-hmm. and we need to we need to figure out which one it is. Right. <laughs> yeah. This is reminding me of the data science as a science. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we're actually trying to do some of that here. I'm not, but uh, Jeff Leake is trying to do some of that here uh, with, you know, trying to implement some like randomized trials of like, you know, telling people to 
use certain tools versus other tools to see how the outcomes change. Yeah. And um, this is with the Coursera class. So it is like a healthy yeah. sample size. <laughs> yeah. But the, the things that we can test are somewhat limited. Yeah. Um, you know, we can't say do this in Python and then do this in R or, or something like that. You know, right. it's a little hard to do that. So, yeah, but it is true. I think it is a really good point. Like we, you know, just we hand wave or we, I don't even know if hand wave is the right thing, but we, for, as statisticians, when it comes to actually method choices and visualization choices, it's, it's very much like, yeah, do what's right. <laughs> and not like, yeah, in 80% of the cases, this is more convincing. Um, it's not that empirical. <laughs> nope. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but then also the audience matters so much. I think what complicates that a lot is that the audience matters so much. So if you have a tool internally like Profit that everyone is trained on, that's going to be, you know, different. Like training is very much of an input to whether or not a method is training of the audience is very much an input as to whether or not a method is convincing. Right. That's right. Yeah. But there, there are other cases where I feel like, uh, I I've seen tools that are where the, the consequences are not so dire for people getting things wrong. A lot of them are mm -hmm. like EDA type tools. Yeah. Um, so one of the one of the examples is we have a tool internally that kind of does document clustering. And so people can kind of like upload a corpus of text, mm -hmm. uh, and it will do LDA and tell you what the clusters are. And people don't use this to make decisions, but they use it to try to just kind of understand what's going on in a really, really large corpus that would take them too long to read through. Mm -hmm. And that's, that's cool. And and that's a that's a great example of a tool where we don't have to worry so much about people betting the farm on <laughs> <laughs> on some statistical tests that they don't really understand and that they might not have framed the question properly. Uh, it's just to kind of give them some insight into what's going on. So stuff like that, I feel like is really low hanging fruit for building good tools. Um, mm -hmm. And obviously like mission, mission critical decision, probably you want uh, with, with, with a hypothesis test involved, which are really hard to understand for most people. Mm -hmm. We probably want an, a statistician in the room or a really, really good tool. But mm -hmm. uh, I think the EDA, EDA style stuff is a really, nice opportunity for us. Mm -hmm. Well, actually, it's I'm glad you said that because that's where the choice to go after forecasting is interesting because that is very mission critical frequently, right? <laughs> like, at least I feel like in terms of like a public company where you're having like financial forecasts or whatever, not just Facebook, like anywhere, um, that's those seem like really important numbers. <laughs> It's a it's a good point, yeah. but al but also the another kind of important point is the what would people be doing in the absence of the the absence of the tool? So mm -hmm. when, prior to profit, uh, people would do a lot of uh, what we call like year over year forecast. So they might just yeah. assume that next year will on the same day will be the same as last year plus some growth rate. Yeah, um, and and that is is kind of simplistic, and it, it's pretty easy to show that you can do better than that. And so yeah. the so we don't really we weren't so worried about uh, making people's lives worse because really what we were doing is kind of strictly better than what most people were going to do. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. Year over, I remember when I um, like entered the business world, <laughs> the year over year was kind of stunning for me, or like month over month, or we because it just was. It, I mean, exactly what you're saying. It it seemed like so like very easy to model in a better way um but again i mean i you can totally understand how people without training and stats would like back into the year over year thing it's like a pretty intuitive way to model um to like quickly get to a number but there is there are better ways <laughs> sometimes yeah yeah good point <laughs> Yeah. I remember I saw a talk one time. It was like some guy was talking about a method that he had developed for missing data. And he was saying that he, he was getting a little nervous because he had heard that someone had implemented his approach in, I think it was SAS. And so like now it was available in software. <laughs> and so that he was worried that people were going to like not use it correctly. Mm -hmm. um, which I thought was a little counterintuitive. Uh, <laughs> but I mean, I think ultimately it's hard to control exactly what people are going to do with you know, what you build. Mm -hmm. um, and that's, sometimes that's an argument to not do it, but usually it's not, I think. Uh, especially if you consider the alternative, which I think is really 
important. Right? Well, I guess in the last few minutes, um, I mentioned in the in the beginning, Sean, it would be cool to hear about um, like your background and why you decided to come into data science. <laughs> sure. Yeah. <laughs> it's just no, I, the... <laughs> I end up talking about this a lot, so it's not not too hard to to talk about. Um, yeah. <laughs> it goes it goes back actually a long time because I I think I'm probably like. I was a proto data scientist uh, all the way back to my first job uh, at the. I worked at the Federal Reserve Board um, mm-hmm. after after undergrad, and actually even in undergrad, I was doing uh, economic research and real estate research. So I was working with uh, geographic data sets uh, all the way back in like two thousand three or two thousand four, mm-hmm. and I and I and I was using Python back then in two thousand three or four. So I, I'm a very old Python user. <laughs> Um, and so I got, I, I worked at the fed and I worked on forecasting problems at the fed, believe it or not. Wow. Uh, I, cool. I didn't, I didn't know anything at the time and I was mostly working on evaluating the errors that were coming from our forecasting models. Uh, so we had, uh, this, this big macroeconomic model called, uh, FRB US or affectionately known as Furbus. <laughs> and it's this like, you know, econ- structural economic model from the 1970s that still powers a lot of the forecasts that the fed generates. Mm-hmm. What's funny about that model actually was that it produced much, much better, much more highly accurate forecasts of what was going to happen with the uh, with the economic crisis than those state of the art economic models that they had developed in the kind of intervening thirty years. Wow! <laughs> so I worked on that model for a while and helping kind of interpret its results. And my the famous thing that I did was I used to make these plots that rolled up to Alan Greenspan. Uh, oh they were, wow! <laughs> they were, so there were we call them fan charts, and they're uh, just basically forecasts of GDP, unemployment, uh, and inflation. And they they were called fan charts because they had the confidence intervals that like kind of fanned out. Mm-hmm. And, and and he he really famously liked the colors to be different than the ones that were producible by our software. So I had to go and produce the plots and then edit them in Corel Draw. To- <laughs> <laughs> in order to to change the colors to the to the correct color scheme, so they were very particular about their reports. That's amazing! Um, <laughs> wow. <laughs> so I've been working with, I've been working with data like in the muck for a really long time, uh, <laughs> and that, also at the Fed we used all kinds of crazy statistical software. We used a, a package called Fame, which stands for Forecasting and Modeling Environment, which I, I challenge anybody that hasn't worked in government to tell me that they worked with that. Um, <laughs> And uh, so after the Fed, I decided I wanted to try to be a software engineer. So I worked in, as a Python developer for uh, a company that had a, like a CRM type product for a couple of years, oh, cool. and, which was a good experience because I really wasn't trained as a developer, but they gave me uh, a lot of opportunity to like to, to pretend like I was one. So mm-hmm. I was shipping code and uh, you know fixing our databases and fixing our servers and and uh, and fixing a ton of bugs uh, for a couple of years. And so I learned a ton of a ton about software development at the time. I had a really great boss uh, named Maki Kato, who is like, uh, like, just like an old Unix guy. Not old. He's not actually very old, but he, you know, he's he he really was the one who kind of trained me on software quality and thinking about testing and bugs. And uh, so I, that was a great experience to have. Mm-hmm. And then uh, then I went to graduate school, and I spent five years sort of just playing with data. So I, I worked with a number of different data sets in grad school. So I was doing the data science thing back then too. I just mm-hmm. didn't really know the name for it. Yeah. And it's always fun to think back. I'm sure you guys do the same thing of like the, the tools that you were using, you know, five or six years ago compared to what you're doing now and think about like how much faster you could have done yeah. <laughs> some of the work you did in graduate school. Oh my God. Yeah. I think about that all the time. <laughs> but my... My big uh, my big data project early on was uh, this professor gave me a uh, a data set of Jim Cramer transcripts from the show Mad Money. Whoa! <laughs> and, and the task the task was to figure out like is there anything that he says that seems to cause a, a bigger change in the stock price? So can we use the text of the transcripts to predict like you know what would happen in the market the next day to that stock? Yeah. Um, and we were able to kind of come up with some cool results there and I got to use LDA, um, Mm -hmm. which was fun and learn a lot about text analysis and stuff like that. Um, Mm -hmm. and then did did you find stuff with that? (laughs) Yeah. yeah. What's the, what's the result? Yeah. 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 Uh, we identified like 20 topics that he tends to discuss or use when he talks about stocks. And then we, uh, 
we had some uh, news data from Reuters that we used to kind of characterize like what people had currently been talking about for the stock. And oh, we, right. what, we were, what we showed was that like when he talks about topics that people haven't been talking about recently, that it was kind of more impactful in the stock price. Interesting. So it, so the, you had to kind of like know that what, what he was going to say was going to be different than what other people had already been saying. Yeah, that's that's cool. Uh, <laughs> Yeah, that was that was a fun paper to work on. And then the latter half of my PhD, I worked a lot on just experimentation. So uh, it was a ton of just stuff on causal inference and pure effects. And uh, and that really rolled right into my work at Facebook. So uh, mm-hmm. so I've been doing data science kind of stuff for for a really long time. But it's been a lot. It's been very varied. It's like, you know, everything from text and software engineering all the way to, um, you know, experiments at a big company and forecasting and so mm-hmm. it's a it's a variety of stuff. So I feel like I kind of am an expert in nothing, and have but have <laughs> at this point because I haven't really I haven't really continued to, down any one of these paths long enough to become like an expert. But I have like a like a real variety of data science stuff that I've worked on. Yeah, I didn't realize you'd been working on forecasting for so long, or that you'd worked on it so long ago. Um, that's really cool. Um, also, you yeah, should mention. Yeah, comes full circle. Oh, yeah, yeah. You should also mention your like claim to fame. <laughs> with, My like, claim your, to fame. Your football map. Thing. <laughs> yeah. The, what is this? The it's kind of like the the saddest way to be famous as a data scientist. Uh, I when I was an intern at Facebook, I made a map of the, the top NFL teams by county, uh, which was. It's it's one of those choropleth maps that you know if you if you go to the D three documentation it's probably one of the first examples that pops up and I, I think I, I was probably like a really early adopter of D three at the time so I made this kind of like very pretty map of all the NFL teams in the United States and where they where their fans were uh, and it I, we wrote a Facebook blog post about it and it went kind of super viral and uh, and I I became a famous data scientist overnight for something that took basically like a group by SQL statement and uh, and copying <laughs> and pasting Mike Bostock's example. So. <laughs> right, that's how it always goes, though. Yeah, it's it's always this the simple stuff that you do that you don't really understand why. Like, and th- in that in that blog post, I made a, a bunch of other visualizations that I think are kind of like even more impressive. And I and since that blog post, I've done two other NFL blog posts uh, for the Facebook Data Science blog, and none of them have gotten like you know, within an order of magnitude of the amount of attention as that yeah. stupid map. So. <laughs> yeah, well. Yeah, was, there's usually, oh, go on. I was, was going to say, there's usually very little correlation between what you think is important and what everyone else thinks is important. Exactly, yeah. <laughs> I, I did kind of learn a lesson there, which is that that, that map uh, shows you something that's actually really obvious to NFL fans. So, so you look at it and you're seeing, um, oh, like the Green Bay Packers fans like live in Wisconsin. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, and and there's nothing particularly surprising about that. But the, the lesson seems to be that people just really like maps. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> that's well, and you had it progressing through the playoffs, right? Um, so it oh, was yeah, like we, it, it, there was like an a element of trash talking <laughs> of like the fair weather fans uh, who like glom I, on for the Super Bowl. I I do think that yeah, people are excited to like. There's something about maps that I think allows people to think very personally about them. They look mm-hmm. at it and they say, "That's me," or "That's those are my people," and I think. Being able to relate to a visualization at a personal level is is important for people. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, it's the first thing you do when, like, the New York Times comes up with a new visualization. You're going, like, the, if they said, like, you know, compare yourself and you had to type in all your personal information, you would do it just to see where you <laughs> where you fell in that visualization. And the, I, yeah. I heard last night that their most popular article ever was the, the one about, like, what your what, – the words that you say and how that kind yep. of describes where you came from. Yeah. Right. yeah. And uh, – and it's it's exactly the same thing. It's like once people can kind of like place themselves in the data, they get really engaged with it. So I think that the sports thing has an element of that going on. Yeah, that's a really good point. I think you're totally right. Um, and yeah, I think the the New York Times, the Josh Katz like maps thing um, was it was like crazy popular. Where it was it came out in December, and it was like their most viewed article that year by the end of December. Like <laughs> it was like it had like two weeks <laughs> to catch up and. Yeah. yeah, I got that book actually. It was very popular at Christmas. Oh yeah, awesome! Yeah. Yes, yeah. I also bought the book. I highly recommend the book. Yeah, yeah. I haven't um, seen it. Yeah, it's got you know it's got extra stuff on kind of each of the different states and things like that. So 
Mm-hmm. It's definitely worth it. Yeah. Um, I also think there's an element of this, which is that like, it, if you kind of your story, the story that you tell with the data kind of has to be. Has to, I think it has to comport a little bit with like what people want to hear a little bit, you know. Yeah. Um, <laughs> <laughs> you know? Tell them what they already know. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I mean, that's. I think it, just yeah, with I guess, numbers. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so um, I don't mean to be cynical about it, but I think there's an element of that. I think you kind of have to strike the balance a little bit there. Yeah. Yeah. The, um, the, with profit, I'll just turn it back to the beginning of the of the conversation. One of the kind of we there aren't good criteria for what a good forecast is because it's really hard to do out of sample validation of forecasts. Yeah. So one of the things that we optimized for was like that it like looks good to analysts. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's like it's like the fork and I describe it as the forecast that you would get if you drew if you had somebody draw with a pen. <laughs> what they think it should be. What they think was going to happen <laughs> if you gave them the line. Uh, that's kind of what it does, and I think that's why people like it so much. Is like they. They look at it and they say, oh, yeah, that's exactly what I would do. (laughs) (laughs) That's really funny. That's an interesting kind of cost function to optimize for. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Yeah. We talked. We talked about doing that with like deep learning. You know, you can yeah. have a, like, a, like a just input the image of the plot and have it fill in the other part of the plot. <laughs> oh, that's really funny. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I wonder, man. Not to. I wonder if you have. You, has anyone like applied um, like the profit algorithm to the election data? <laughs> That would be an inch. That was an interesting forecasting problem that everyone was uh, watching on a daily basis. <laughs> That's true. Maybe a little too watching a little too closely. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Right. Cool. Well, right. well. Do you want to go right? <laughs> no, no. I was just gonna say thanks for joining us. <laughs> yeah. Me yeah. too. Yeah. yeah. This was great. Yeah. Thanks so much. My pleasure. It's you guys are great. Thanks for all the great questions. Any anybody that. Uh, Let's me talk for an hour is okay in my books. So. <laughs> Thanks, guys. <laughs> Excellent. <laughs>